Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Netflix's Mank from director David Fincher, and I am happy to be joined by my friend Elijah Howard to talk about this one. Elijah, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this movie with Elijah. As I said, Mank is from director David Fincher, but it is kind of a longtime passion project of his that he's tried to get made for a really long time because it was uh, a script that was originally written by his dad when David Fincher kind of suggested this might be a story he'd want to do. Jack Fincher was a kind of a longtime entertainment writer that wanted to kind of write a script, and David Fincher kind of came across this story when he read, uh, I, I think I think it was that he was inspired by the Pauline Kale essay, Raising Cain, if I saw that correctly, Elijah, and because... Uh, it's a story about how whether or not the actual screenwriting credit for uh, Citizen Kane really should have been given to Orson Welles at all or if it just belonged to Herman Mankiewicz, who is kind of the uh, main focus of this story as it follows him both in like the early 30s but also in the early 40s as he is uh, putting together the screenplay for Citizen Kane. He's kind of at wit's end a little bit and struggled with alcoholism and recently was in a car accident, broke his leg, but Orson Welles had kind of contacted him and wanted him to uh, help him to write the script for this movie and he takes the assignment and is doing so in like a while being put up in a house in uh, Victorville, California. He's being helped by a German nurse and also a secretary who's typing it as he orates the script. The secretary is played by Lily Collins and he as he's doing this we're seeing a lot of flashbacks to his time earlier in the entertainment industry as he is dealing with MGM Studios and uh, Louis B. Mayer and who's also closely associated with William Randolph Hearst, who is uh, largely inspired Citizen Kane, as most people well know. And he had also become friends with William Randolph Hearst's uh, mistress, Marion Davies, who uh, has her own uh, role to depending to varying extents, depending on, I guess, who you talk to as an inspiration for Citizen Kane. And uh, Elijah, you know, when I first asked you to do this, I thought it'd be kind of it'd be it'd be a little bit of a fun bookend to a conversation we had over two years ago now when we talked about the other side of the wind, because I kind of had my first introduction to Orson Welles at that time. I watched it as in Kane for the first time. And uh, it was kind of a weird, uh, a, a weird way to talk about it, because at the time I'd seen two Orson Welles movies. I'd seen Citizen Kane and I'd seen the other side of the wind. And there's a lot in between that. I've at least watched a couple more of them over the last couple of years. And I thought, oh, well, Elijah came and talked about Orson Welles. So naturally, I should invite Elijah back to talk about uh, this movie, which had been largely marketed and talked about as being about the battle for the screenwriting credit. That's uh, not there. I mean, I, I think a lot, maybe a lot of people kind of assumed that would that was what it would be about because they knew that was kind of the significance of Herman Mankiewicz. I'm not saying that Netflix kind of wrongly uh, said that that was what it was going to be about or David Fincher led on because I don't think that's the case. But I think. A lot of us just kind of assumed that this was going to be the story over the fight for this screenwriting credit. And I kind of largely assumed that up until I watched the movie a few days ago, even though a lot of critics saw it a month ago and talked about it. I don't think I really read too much of any of the coverage, so I just went in still assuming it was going to be that story. And it's really not so much that story. So I guess where I want to start with you is, did you come into this wanting to get like, not I, want, I don't want to say a definitive take on this story, because I think there's always going to be varying accounts of this behind the scenes Hollywood story. But did you come in wanting to get Jack Fincher's like in-depth take on the actual dynamic between Orson Welles and Herman Mankiewicz? Or were you surprised that it wasn't that? And were you ultimately kind of happy with the story that 
David, and I should also say, I think uh, David Fincher and Eric Roth a little worked up Jack Fincher's script a little bit from what I've read and might have changed some things here and there. But I guess what I wanted to ask you, Elijah, was whatever direction they decided to take this story in, was it a ride you were happy to go on? Or were you like, oh, man, like I, I really wish I could have seen this uh, battle over a screenwriting credit. And how did you feel about the story they ultimately decided to tell? Yeah, I mean, the story of the screenwriting credit and who deserved it and, um, you know, kind of kind of spawning out of that uh, Pauline Kael um, article that you mentioned, I think it was published in 1971 in The New Yorker. Yep. Um, and it was, it was fairly famous at the time and, and as being a, you know, a sort of expose, if you will, of what I think several people considered to be uh, – an injustice in the uh, in the film world, and but but the I think the while that may have been the kernel from which this idea was born, I don't know that it would it would have been purely a worthwhile story to tell in that regard, and because because honestly, this is I mean I think for many outsiders maybe it, it might not be as common knowledge that. You know, Herman Mankiewicz, quote unquote, co-wrote Citizen Kane and, and by and large, in reality, probably wrote a significant amount of it more than, you know, uh, significantly more than than Orson Welles or, or John Houseman, for that matter, uh, contributed to the screenplay. That, you know, was definitely a novel statement in 1971 when Pauline Kael wrote her article. But since then, it's pretty well tread ground. Um, in that there's been documentaries, I believe, about it in the past, as well as uh, there was an HBO film about 20 years ago now with Leif Schreiber and John Malkovich as Wells and Mankiewicz, uh, respectively. Hmm. And for me, I, I, you know, was coming into this excited because of what I saw in the trailers, um, you know, that this looked to be stylistically, at least, very interesting and in to my mind, I was saying, you know, if if it is just about the battle over the screenplay credit, then so be it. Like, you know, I'm sure it'll still be great. I was pleasantly surprised to get into the movie, into the meat of the movie, and, and to find that it really had nothing to do with that. That right. it, was, it was more about uh, Herman Mankiewicz as a person, and you know, um, his his inner demons and and. The, the constant battle that he was having in his life with his, his own personality, if you will. Um, and I thought that that made for a much more intriguing, uh, film than probably what we would have gotten if it had just been a, a procedural, if you will, about, uh, the, the battle for the credit over the screenplay. Yeah. He said, uh, I, and I was just reading up on stuff earlier. He, Fincher actually said, it was not my interest to make a movie about a posthumous credit arbitration. I was interested in making a movie about a man who agreed not to take any credit and who then changed his mind. That was interesting to me, which I thought was interesting because as I was watching it, I was like the second time because I had a weird experience that I don't need to recount for the listeners the first time where I fell asleep and maybe didn't grasp it as well as I should have. But I watched it again and it kind of clicked for me more as like a, oh, this is about a guy like deciding to even write the thing because, you know, after he actually writes the movie within the movie, a lot of people come to him and it seems like they're convincing him not to do it. But, and I, so I was kind of thinking about it. Oh, like they obviously don't want him to go forward with it. Cause all these people have their own interest. They, they all have their own reasons for not wanting to piss off William Randolph Hearst. Uh, but then I realized like, well, 
he doesn't really have the power to like not make this movie happen. This is like it's Orson Welles's thing. Like it was his deal with RKO that gave him like all this control. Like I don't really know if Mankiewicz really could have like tanked the thing on his own if he really agreed with any of these people that are coming to talk to him. But I still kind of watched it and was taking it in, and it's like, oh, like he had to even decide to like go all out and really put Hearst on full blast like he did. But I guess the ultimate decision he really does have to make is putting his name behind it with all those consequences. So I think it's kind of like both. It's really interesting that it's a movie more about him just like one writing it to begin with and two, even wanting to be associated with it. One, because I guess he, as he says multiple times and multiple people say it's the best thing he ever wrote, but two that like, I think he does have a little bit of a, like a, he, he does hit a bit of a breaking point with all these people he's associated with. And he's like, you know, no, I think this is the right thing to do. And I, and I think I agree with David Fincher and that might, I don't know. Part of me thinks that there could still be a movie about the other side of this, but I was more than happy to really take in this movie once it really clicked for me as to what it was actually about. Sure. Yeah, I I agree. And I think it's a movie, you know, a movie about uh, simply the fight over the credit, I think, loses the context and it loses sight of uh, who these people were, in particular, who Herman Mankiewicz was and what. Uh, you know, what considerations in his life led him to actually fight for that credit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what this movie is establishing. And I think Fincher knows that. I think Fincher knows that we all we already know the outcome of the fight over the credit. We know that eventually he was awarded credit for the movie uh, you know, for, for as a co-writer for the film. And I think Fincher recognizes that that's by and large not really that important. And what is important is recognizing why he fought for the credit for the movie. Right. And it's a, it, it turns into a much more intriguing film than about a man who has kind of let his life get run over, um, in some cases, quite literally by, by, you know, by his own, by his own hand in many cases, by his own personality, but also by, uh, people who are maybe not quite as earnest or as, uh, you know, as well-meaning as he is. Even when he makes mistakes, there's, you know, it's more out of a sense of he thinks he's doing the right thing. Um, and, and so this, this sets up his decision to stand by his credit and to, and to, you know, in his determination to get his credit for the film as Mankiewicz seeing this as an opportunity to actually do something good for once to, to, or to make a statement, you know, to... To, to put a to, to put his foot down about something yeah one of the pleasant things about the movie for me is I don't know why I, again it might have just been because I had I, I I was thinking back to more of the stuff Gary Oldman has done like most recently and he obviously won the Oscar for playing Winston Churchill who and that's a bit of a you know somewhat of a curmudgeonly performance at times uh, given the type of character he was and uh, I don't know if he has like the most like warm and genteel real life persona necessarily Gary Oldman does so what little I knew and that I knew this movie was about a drunk I think I came in like expecting an angry drunk and I had braced myself for that kind of movie thinking that was what I was sitting about to sit in for two hours of just watching some guy that was angry and maybe bitter because he gets in a fight about this screenplay credit and it was really interesting I mean to see that hey it's really not that and this is actually like a a pretty charming guy uh for the most part and i enjoyed seeing him navigate his way throughout this movie and charm a lot of these people and uh see how it kind of came across but then also kind of come to see that like yeah he kind of fit in with these people at a to a certain extent early on and 
it, it came to find that, hey, maybe this really isn't my thing so much. And maybe I am, there's something about these people that doesn't sit right with me. And I enjoyed seeing him come to that realization after just having uh, some very pleasant interactions with a lot of these folks at a certain point. And I, I don't know a lot about this time in Hollywood necessarily. I'm pretty open about that on the podcast and that I, I need to watch more old movies. I've done a very good job of that in quarantine, uh, in my opinion. I've watched more movies from 1960, before 1960 in this year than I've ever had in any other year easily but i still didn't know a lot about these figures i i I knew obviously who louis b mayer was and who william randolph hearst was but i never really thought about their politics was that something that uh were you even like really cognizant of any of these uh dynamics and going into this and the way these guys kind of tried to put their thumb on the scales of the political system while they were also running like entertainment and media elijah and what did you think of seeing mank kind of the the person in the movie kind of navigate that well, yeah, and there's there's definitely there's two layers to it, and I think the movie does a fantastic job illustrating that um, because you you have people like Louis B. Mayer at the top of the chain in, in these in, in his studio, um, you know, at MGM, uh, and his desire to to have to have more than just money and the ability to make movies. He wants power and cloud, and that's. Uh, you know that that plays out in his decisions, you know, in his, in his political allegiances and uh, such and so on. But below that, you have the secondary layer of politics with uh, with the studios themselves, because in this time period, in in the 30s um, and into the 40s, the the studios were they were the driving force more so than specific filmmakers. Um, and, th- and I think that's, that's hinted at with Orson Welles, you know, they, they mention I think Mankiewicz, you know, says like, Oh, you're the, you're the outsider who's come to, you know, to buck the trend because the studios themselves had so much power over filmmakers and they did not want to cede that power. Uh, and that's what Wells represented was the, the power of the studio being kind of torn away. Yeah, because so, RKO, RKO gave him like complete control in that first deal he got with them. Right, exactly, um, and th- that is of course uh, contrasted with MGM in particular, with with Louis B. Mayer being this uh, almost a crime boss of sorts, you know, <laughs> um, a boss tweed type, you know, kind of in control of, uh, of of everything that happens, and to a somewhat lesser extent, but to, with with. Uh, Paramount as well, where we first see uh, uh, Herman Mankiewicz in, in the writer's room and, you know, everything has to run past David Oselznick. And then uh, later when he runs into David Oselznick again at, at, at Irvin Thalberg's funeral, you know, he get, even though that's years later, Mankiewicz is reminded again, you know, uh, um, David Oselznick kind of tells him like, oh, you should come by the office sometime. And Mankiewicz says, I did, and, you know. <laughs> I couldn't even get past your secretary. You said your, secre- your secretary's secretary. <laughs> your secretary's secretary. And David Oselznick's just kind of like, yeah, okay, and then leaves. Um, it's sort of this cruel reminder that there is this this political element still that exists within the in the studios. And I think you know that's what I'm talking about with these two layers of things that there is an inherent politics to the process of filmmaking, and that that. Uh, informs a larger uh, conversation about politics with with these people in general, um, and that plays out both 
literally in the, the allegiances that they make, uh, you know, in the, in the California gubernatorial race that's highlighted by the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in, in passing with any time that they discuss politics, there is this blase sort of moralizing of, of right and wrong and they stick to it and it puts uh, Mankiewicz and the audience in an interesting position to kind of hear things from an outsider's perspective. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned specifically, one, just how all-powerful the studios were in that time, but also uh, just the the way, the, the way they positioned themselves politically. I haven't tried so much to think about or no, I don't want to say that, but like it's it's kind of funny how we've come up on the second trade episode, or really the third trade episode in a way. But because I, I recorded one on Nomadland earlier this week that I'm not going to put out for a couple months, that's why I'm, I'm I, I confused myself right there. But basically, I I said I said I said in that episode, you know, it, it's they they made this movie in 2019. It's not it's it's not something they planned, but it does feel awfully timely because it's a movie about a. a it's a movie set in 2011, 2012, when we were still in the recession, kind of, and a lot of the fallout of that is it, it focuses on a lot of the characters that felt that felt the fallout of that. Same as Up in the Air, which I did the week before, and and here, I couldn't help but think about today as I watch this, and uh, you know, I've actually thought about sports a lot oddly as i was watching that and how we've kind of looked to our sports teams in this time in 2020 and kind of how they've handled it in our sports leagues and i just saw a lot of parallels to the like the way the studios were uh were kind of run at the time then because there's a really notable walk and talk sequence here when uh herman first brings his brother joseph mankiewicz over and gets him a meeting with lily b mayer who brings them on this very fun scene where they walk all throughout the studio and then he walks into like a meeting with like just all of his biggest employees but also maybe some of the smaller ones as well and tells them this whole great depression thing is going to cause me to have to give you guys a pay cut sorry and uh you hear some saying like oh yeah sure we'll do it and others are like that's not really fair to the people that make very little money and i couldn't help but think about a lot of the negotiations that the sports leagues had to go through this year when they came back to work and not only that but i also thought about uh at, at one point uh, or I, saw, I thought specifically about my Philadelphia 76ers, where they tried to make all their employees like a, a certain percentage pay cut, that, that even if they made 50000 and took a lot of flack and had, to, and had to walk it back. And at one point in that scene, someone yells out, because he says, we're all in this together as a family, and someone yells out to Mayor, hey, are you taking a pay cut too? And he sidesteps the question and keeps talking. And... It made me think about how, like, oh, well, a lot of these, a lot of these companies are gonna like really claim to be on the side of good, and when it comes to like nut cutting time, they're actually gonna do the thing that's just gonna like ultimately help their bottom line and help the people at the top, even if they can afford to take more of a hit. And I thought that was, it was a really good illustration of how that still would have even worked in that time, even if these people like might position themselves uh, as better than they actually are, as, as being better, as being uh, more virtuous and better. And you can even see when they do that in the scene at San Simeon, when they are, t- which you kind of hinted at, when they are talking about the Nazis and, and, and trying to say like, oh yeah, like we're not we're not like that. We don't have to worry about that. We're not the communists either, but and we're not that. But it, it, we really don't have to worry about that becoming like the prevailing, um, the, a prevailing ideology anywhere in the world. And we can't turn our back on the German market. Is basically what I think. Uh, I think Mayer says that, even though I mean, it's obviously a Jewish guy, and it was. Uh, I don't know. It was just pretty telling that you know, 
the movie found a way to like really show just how a lot of these heads of these big corporations will try and really rationalize a, a lot of their actions and put their own interests above those that are below them. And it really got into all that and doing it from Mank's point of view really recontextualized a lot of what he is going through in the 1940s timeline. And I thought it was really impressive how it weaved all that together. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a it's at it, its simplest aspect, and I think this would be reductionist, but it it is, you know, it's it's that age old statement of you know power corrupts, absolutely right. Uh, and I think this is kind of uh, an examination of how politics pervades everything. And it's it, which is also kind of something you could say Citizen Kane about is to is also about to a certain extent, which is funny how this right. movie finds a way to echo that at the same time as being literally about it in some ways. Right, and I th- oh, I, mean, I don't think that's by mistake at all. Yeah. There's many aspects of this movie that are meant to evoke Citizen Kane, both as uh, you know visual elements, whether it's shots or cuts that are fairly similar. But I, I do agree that by and large, the emotional and philosophical thrust of the movie uh, is definitely meant to to emulate that notion, um, and to maybe to show us that not much how how little has changed really. Um, you know, like you said, it's, it's hard to watch this movie now in 2020 and not, uh, not see some, some parallels. Yeah. Well, you, you also see, well, I, I, the reason I even brought up the thing about, uh, not turning your back in the German market, I meant to, I meant to make a further comparison to the NBA with like all the China stuff they had to deal with earlier this year. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, I feel like at some point I, I forgot to write it down, but I do feel like at some point I think I feel like at some point mayor or someone at some point tries to like make it seem like I don't know if he he obviously doesn't use the term progressive. They make it very clear that he's a conservative, but they try and make it seem like that the studios are a little more forward thinking in some ways. But on top of that, I think at one point Mank like reads off what Upton Sinclair wrote about Hearst at one point and how he was, you know, he started out obviously maybe seeming more populist than he ultimately became, which is also, again, kind of what happens in Citizen Kane with the, a lot of the rhetoric that uh, Charles Kane is using throughout that movie and then ultimately you know, ends up coming to stand for something else down the road. And like you said, I think it's kind of funny that Jack Fincher, I guess, wrote this thing in the early 90s. And I, I mean, from what I, from what I said earlier, I mean, it does seem like maybe they touched it up a bit, but it's pretty funny that like he wrote this in the early 90s and it, it feels almost more relevant today than it kind of would have even felt in the early 90s and, and even sadder in that like we're 30 years later and still, uh, like you said, not much has changed. And I think it's in some ways we've, we're really, I think there's there's levels to it too, you know, because there is the there's obviously the overarching political connotations of the film, uh, you know, the film's relationship with up with with Upton Sinclair, the quote unquote socialist, and particularly on Louis B. Mayer, um, you know, in his his involvement in in Republican politics, um, and I, there's definitely some parallels drawn there. But I think, you know, when you break it down to the smaller levels as well, and this notion of the studio politics, I think I find it hard to believe that Fincher was not also in some ways taking stabs at what he sees as, uh, you know, as kind of backsliding into, uh, into a society in which, uh, studios are given too much power, it, it, it too much political power. Um, yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole subplot external or internal. Yeah. There's a whole subplot in here about the writer's guild, even becoming, formed in the first place and there's still been a lot of 
trouble that the WGA has had just the last few years. And they're still fighting studios in certain ways, even though if that was, it felt like th- th- this movie is covering the time period in which this is this the genesis. But there is a lot of, uh, there there is a lot of like you said, there's a lot of like lower level studio politicking going on about this because, in in Mayer has kind of has his hands in, in in both buckets, real world politics going on above that because he's and he is so closely associated with Hearst, who as they see is you know was a politician briefly in his own right and is socializing with senators but uh you know he's always looking out for his bottom line too with his studio and there's just I mean, there's a lot going on there but I, I think the movie is pretty efficient in handling all of it i agree i do agree and i think i think it helps that we can center around such an intriguing character like herman Mankiewicz, who you know as i mentioned i, I think he spends a lot of the film feeling like a a fifth business, if you will, you know, that he's kind of, he is a side character in this story. And, and he, the term, the term, he's just a writer or that's just a writer is said, I think like the first time he's in mayor and her presence or no mayor and Thayer, uh, mayor and Thayer's presence. Thalberg. Thalberg. I don't know why that's there. Yeah. Thalberg. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, and yeah. And I think that is the general, overarching narrative of the film, right, is Mankiewicz trying to find meaning in what he's doing. Um, and it's, I think it helps that the story uh, is presented the way it is in, in a very similar way to Citizen Kane, where we can see these episodes from the past play kind of non-concurrently in his mind and see how he's been sidelined for much of his life. Do you, do you think that might have been why he was – I mean, I guess it, we can only speculate, but the movie makes a really big deal about his uh, relationship with uh, Marion Davies. Do you think that might have been part of why he, they were drawn to each other? You said he's trying to figure out you know, what to make of his life, and she's going through a transition throughout most of this movie as well because we didn't really talk about her at all yet, and I think that's a big part of this movie. And my first watch, like it, it felt like the movie soared in a different way whenever Amanda Seyfried was on screen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's just – and I think it's because that's a reflection of, of the audience – and Herman Mankiewicz's perspective. And I think, you know, after he finishes the screenplay, there's this, you know, kind of collection of scenes as various people come to him and tell him, or, you know, urge him to kill it, to, you know, basically to, to walk away from the screenplay. Um, and I think almost every single person brings up this feeling of disrespect towards Marion, towards, the character that everybody identifies as Marion Davies in the Citizen Kane screenplay, uh, Susan Kane, right? I think that's her, Susan Alexander Kane, the character in the screenplay. Mm-hmm. And every time, you know, Mank insists that it's not. And at some point, we have to sit back and wonder, like, why is he doing it? Is he just doing that to cover? Or does he really have a different perspective for that character? And I, I think, I would think that he does. I think that he sees. He sees Marianne Davies in the character, but he doesn't find it insulting to present her as a caged bird because that's how he feels, too. He feels trapped. And he, and that, and he does say that's how he feels everyone else sees her. And I, right. I tend to believe him when he says that. Agree. Yeah, absolutely. And I, think, and I think not only does he think everybody else sees her that way, but I think he sees himself that way. And I think that's why there's always this spark when they're together on screen because I think – Herman Mankiewicz really feels like, you know, that, that, that he understands Marion Davies and, you know, in their last scene together, maybe it's clear that he doesn't really, 
Or, or, he, or he might not understand her relationship with uh, Hearst as much as he thought he did. With Hearst, yeah. right. I think he imagined her being trapped, and maybe to a degree she was, but I think, you know, she explains it as she saw him as, you know, she saw Hearst as her ticket out of out of a poor and destitute life. And she, t- she took it, and she seemed like she kind of accepted that, you know? And, right. like, she, I mean— she, I don't know. It feels like you kind of get the feeling she could have gotten out if she really wanted to, and she kind of accepted where she was. Right, exactly. And I think that that was, you know, Mankiewicz's misstep was assuming that she couldn't leave. But but by and large, it was probably projection, right? He saw what he wanted to in her because it was, to some degree, what he saw in himself, um, somebody who felt trapped. Whether whether or not that was true of Mankiewicz, you know, was was he really trapped? Could he have walked away from everything? Probably. But some people who live in realities like that don't always see that. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. And I, I, I don't know. I just it was really, really interesting to see that the, the, the depiction of them two on screen. It felt it felt unique from just any really from any kind of male female relationship i'd ever seen on screen you it's kind of confirmed later when he's getting chewed out by his wife and i want to talk about his wife because i think that's a really interesting character actually in this movie but she it calls him out for his like silly platonic affairs so you know it makes you think it's not something where it's like he was pining after her romantically really that especially it's reaffirmed to me by his wife saying that that that's not really what we're meant to think this is and he is just has a connection with this person and I thought that was a, that that was pretty cool because that doesn't feel like the kind of relationship you necessarily see portrayed in movies that often. It's uh, this platonic male female friendships in this way, and I I so I appreciated that that was part of the story they really wanted to tell. Yeah, I agree, and I I think it it kind of it spawns out of this sense that Mankiewicz is is kind of a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's Kind of almost like a Cyrano kind of character where there's no threat of him really being a, you know, a, a an adulterer or something of that nature. He's just, he's, he's more gentlemanly than, than he probably should be. <laughs> um, and, Given how much of a slob and drunk he is. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, <laughs> and I think that, um, that sort of underlines his relationship with, with Marion Davies and also with Rita Alexander with Lily Collins character and also his wife and the fact that he like she stayed oh, with right. him like she gets at, she has like asked like three times throughout the movie like why are you still with me or why are you like why do why do you hang around and uh, I guess that was what, what I was wanting to say about oh I, I can mention Rita Alexander too but I thought the character of his wife was interesting I was kind of a little worried that it was going to be like a really thankless role because I saw stuff about this movie and I saw some critics that I respect being a little put off by like some of the disregard for the actual discrepancies between the ages of the characters and the ages of the performers. I think David Fincher kind of justified it that, you know, Gary Oldman's like 19, 20 years older than Mank was at the time of the events of this film, but apparently Mank drank himself to death, so he just looked older than he was anyway, so fine. Right. But he's his wife's played by Tuppence Middleson, who is like 30 years younger than Gary Oldman. So, I mean, conversely, I guess you could say that, like, the the wife she might have been a couple years younger than him in real life to begin with and hey maybe she, she's gonna look her age more so anyway so that's fine but i was a little worried when i saw some criticism of that that she was gonna be your typical movie wife and just be 
you know, the, the wet blanket there, bringing down the man just trying to go out and do his thing and make it big in entertainment. And on top of that, you have the whole poor Sarah thing, too, which I think I take more as actually a self-deprecating joke from him uh, for having to put up with him. And he's I, I, that's how I read that. I didn't read it as necessarily cruel to, towards her. But just when you add on that term right there, you think she's going to be just kind of there being sad off to the side. And she has more of a backbone than I expected. And I appreciated that, but also has a sense of humor. And I, 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 the, the, the line, something I, it's been a while, I haven't seen a horse's face in years, was a really good line uh, that she says to him kind of uh, at, at their last conversation when she does get to just tell him off and uh, stand up for herself. And I really respected that, you know, I feel like a lot of movies of this time and um, or movies that uh, or movies that came out in the, in the time this movie is set in which this movie is made to look like or movies that are more modern but set in the time they a lot of times they don't do their female characters justice and i was really impressed with how this movie very much so had like three really good performances from its female characters and three uh, perform, depicting three really good characters all in their own right yeah absolutely i mean and uh Tuppence middleton's performance was phenomenal and i you know i think we definitely get the sense from her character that it's not, I think, you know, when we were watching it, I think, you know, at one point uh, in that last conversation that she has, I think I was watching this with my girlfriend at the time and she kind of turned to me and said, like, I mean, it's just the, it's just the sunk cost fallacy, right? Like she she feels like she's dedicated so much to this guy that she can't leave him. And I agreed. And then but as the conversation kind of progressed, it became clearer that it's not that she feels you know, that she hates him and that, you know, she's just put too much into the relationship, but it's that, uh, you know, she truly loves him for all those things. And she, you know, she says that she says, right. It's, I've, I've been a lot of things, but I've never been bored you know, it, being married to you. And, and, and they also have really good chemistry. The actors do, despite that age difference, I think they do. And that just right. kind of helps. I mean, there, there's a version of this in which not only is a wet blanket kind of character, but maybe they, they, they just don't click as well. And it's harder to even imagine them ever being in a happy marriage to begin with, which, which definitely wasn't the case. Like she might be kind of annoyed. She has to put up with a lot of his antics, but it, at the same time, you could, you could tell why she would have been charmed by him in the first place and would stick around as long as she did. And I think that's kind of important because it would just be like man like why why are we even spending time here if you're not going to put in the effort to make me think that this could have been a marriage in the first place because they spend a decent amount of time with her right absolutely and i think that's uh that's that's a, a testament to the to the writing and to the performances to to not leave us in that position and also it's funny it's kind of a weird choice i think it works out though that she's straight up british whereas lily collins was born in england but moved to the america when she was like six or seven so maybe it's not as much of a stretch for her to do a british accent as it would be for some actors but like she's 32 and she was six or seven when she moved here i can't remember i looked it up earlier and she is playing she's she's in real life though i've heard lily collins talk like she sounds like she's she, she sounds like american she doesn't have an actual british accent necessarily so to cast her when she's basically only like a year or two younger than tuppence middleton to, to cast I mean, she does look younger than tuppence middleton so it would have been weird if she was playing gary oldman's wife but the fact is they cast her as the british person and she sounds american in real life and they cast tuppence middleton as the the jewish wife from new york and it and, and both performances work like kudos to them because i think there's a way in which like both of those things could have gone off the rails if done incorrectly but i mean i'd say it's just it's a little bit of a risk when you could have just uh you could have just cast an american woman an american jewish 30 something year old woman to play that part and probably would have been fine but like she she handled it well so i think there's a risk there but it paid off in in both respects because you're having someone who's effectively american do a british accent and she does a good job of it too 
So I mean, you, you mentioned Willie Collins earlier. Did you you thought that the, you thought that they gave that character her due, though? I do. Um, I think she maybe has a similar realization, and you know, which is that Mankiewicz is somebody who has been sidelined for so long that perhaps he doesn't even he doesn't realize when he's like saying things anymore. You know, that might upset people, and that he he is still a good-hearted person. They make a reference to she, she has a conversation with the German um, housemaid who, you know, reveals that, uh, you know, Mankiewicz qu- quietly funded the evacuation of an entire village, an entire town in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in Germany, right. um, you know, to escape, to escape the, uh, the Nazi regime. And, you know, it's, it's those kind of things that I talk of that I mean when I, when I say that, you know, he is somebody who is at his heart a, um, a, a a gentlemanly kind of person, a gentlemanly kind of character, at least in the film. And I think with Lily Collins, when she meets him, you know, she only sees that drunk. She sees the, you know, the, the guy who can literally cannot function without liquor and she has that same realization where she doesn't, you know, she doesn't forgive him for being an ass necessarily, <laughs> but she recognizes that he, he means well and he would never, you know, he, he does not, doesn't go out of his way to be harmful. Like a lot of the people that we see in the film, a lot of the men we see in the film, you know, appear to go out of their way to be, to be assholes, whether it's to other women or to, you know, to, uh, to each other i think that's uh, that's what makes lily collins's character and her performance great is that she's not a weak character who's only there as a as a soundboard for uh for mankowitz but she is she's she's another part of the audience experience for us to you know to to learn from and i i thought she did a great job with that role yeah, I've liked her and stuff before too, and I was I was happy to see she was like really really brought it. I was like I was like almost a little caught off guard when the first time I heard her speak in an English accent. I'm like, oh, she's doing this, but she pulls it off. I didn't watch a single second of that Netflix show Emily in Paris, but it is kind of funny that like everyone kind of that was a huge thing for like a few weeks last month, and everyone like made fun of how bad it was, but how they couldn't stop watching it. And someone that like got a lot of attention for playing apparently a, a ridiculous a character on a ridiculous show now just kind of shows up and is like can kind of throw this performance in any hater's face because it's really cool that she got to, you know, bite no apart like this in a David Fincher movie and made the most of it in what was kind of a supporting performance. I, I, I wanted to ask you next about the look of the film, but I, I think it'll be better just to do that after I work backward a little bit and talk about the last remaining bit of the story I really wanted to ask you about because we only kind of grazed on that part of the California gubernatorial race. And I wanted to go back to it for a second because I kept talking about all this, you know, stuff that still felt really relevant today. And I totally neglected that there's an entire plot line about fake news in this movie, basically. And I was curious because, well, first of all, uh, what did you think of uh, Bill Nye? He's a socialist. News to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, from about 40 yards away uh, (laughs) from the back of his head for 30 seconds. But that was a great a great moment, nonetheless, to uh, to to have him appear there as Upton Sinclair. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of that was fun. I, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, why? Why was it Bill Nye? But 
we may never know, and it doesn't really matter. It it's just, it's just, just very cool. yeah, it's very weird because uh, I mean, like so many of the other uh, performances in this movie, uh, by ba- basically most roles aside, you know, aside from like, I mean, I don't think too many people really know much about Arliss Howard. So it's like Charles Dance, Lily Collins, and Gary Oldman, and then it's just like a, a bunch of people really, and it's kind of funny that like they could have filled in every other role with this like a person but it's like oh no we'll make this one bill nye it's just so random but i kept kind of alluding earlier to the fact that like you know uh for one reason or another uh mankwitz whose politics are obviously fairly different from a lot of the leaders of these studios and stuff uh became disillusioned one way or another but it really did feel like probably the big tipping point was just for him because it's the it's the impetus for one of his conversations with uh, with Marion when he tries to get her to put a stop to these films and stuff. he uh, it, it just got really out of hand, and it really rubbed him the wrong way that the power of the studios was uh, being used in this manner. I was curious, did that part of the movie ring particularly true to you, or did it feel on the nose in light of everything that we're dealing with the last couple of years, or can you just kind of give it credit for being pretty prescient? Yeah, I mean, it, it, certainly if you if, – if without knowing necessarily what elements of the script were Changed yeah. or polished or what whatnot, um, you know, because the script was written in the nineties. But I think those those, pro- those propaganda films, from what I can gather, were a thing that happened. I think they they certainly were right, and I think you know their relevance today is certainly um, certainly valuable. I mean, it was it would have been valuable back in the in the nineties too, because that was a you know that was that was the really you know the nineties in particular was a was a heyday for political ads mm. um, on TV in particular that veered away from i think this is uh you know if if you've ever seen the movie w uh the oliver stone film about about george bush um i actually haven't seen that one there there's a moment in that they highlight you know from uh bush's younger years where he's working on uh his father's campaign yeah the 1988 campaign was like a big inflection point for that stuff yeah and he he you know presents him an ad that is particularly vicious mocking uh, uh dukakis's position on on crime utilizing uh you know in, in uh, the story of uh of willie horton rapist who yeah. yeah willie right willie Holt exactly who um you know was given a like a sabbatical week from from prison and went and killed somebody and and you know it's a it's meant to show that that was kind of a turning point for political ads. And so I think that if this movie had been made in the nineties, that would have been just as relevant then because we were dealing with at that point, uh, you know, a switch from ads that were mostly just a, a positive, you know, a positive pluses and minuses kind of thing with, uh, different candidates to being ads that, you know, specifically viciously attacked, uh, opposing candidates, um, for any number of things true or, perhaps untrue and so i think uh this this movie is it's still relevant today obviously perhaps even more so which you know that's a that's a sad statement about the world right (laughs) yeah 30 years and we've we've done nothing to improve on that and and it's like even worse with a lot of the technology we have now and it's kind of sad everyone's really worried about what that's going to mean for the next you know decade when things can even be made to seem more real when they're actually more fake. And that's scary. But I, I, I did think it was really, uh, it, it only enhanced the overall story they were trying to tell here. And that, He's obviously becoming more disenchanted with these, with a lot of these people that he's been rubbing shoulders with. Mank is, 
Uh, but at the same time, it, now he's like, I think he's even more disenchanted with the medium almost to a certain extent. They, they even show at the end and well, I'm sure some of it had to do with his health, but the fact is he makes that choice to put his name on the script and it probably made it harder for him to ever work again. If, uh, for as long as he was still physically able to do so, he didn't really work much after Citizen Kane, uh, probably cause he decided to piss off Hearst and Mayer and all them. And it's funny though. It's like, it's not only just this, them as people, but also just the way he knows that they're going to use this technology he probably doesn't romanticize film in the same way that he did uh, when we first meet him at the beginning of the movie. And he's really excited to keep bringing all these other young writers out like, like he does. And I, I it's, it's pretty fascinating though. He's just so in that lifestyle in the beginning of the thirties and uh, he's really just seen so much. I mean, uh, probably not a coincidence that uh, Joseph Goebbels name comes up a lot in this movie too. And that uh, some, someone who, really kind of use the medium to really uh, heinous ends in another part of the country. It's, uh, it's, it's becoming apparent to Mink that a lot of this stuff can be used for all the wrong reasons. And uh, to see him have to see that with, along with how these, how these guys want, want to obscure the facts and how they treat their underlings. It's, it, it seems it's, it's just uh, the movie, I think just a really effective job in showing just the confluence of all those different things kind of coming together to bring the guy to this point where he'll, you know, He's a, he'll write this work, but also be proud enough to put his name on it, consequences be damned. And that's ultimately uh, a pretty impressive feat given everything that this movie does try to do. So Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of my favorite moments um, from the film, mm-hmm. uh, an editorial choice, I would say, but it was, you know, I thought it was really interesting, was, um, you know, there's the episode in 1934 where, uh, you know, he has this interaction with Shelley Metcalf, who's this uh, an editor at uh, at MGM, who is kind of forced into this quid pro quo of if he if he mm-hmm. cuts these uh, these Sinclair or these uh, these anti Sinclair pro Frank Merriam ads, you know, that he'll be given a job as a director uh, mm-hmm. on something. Yeah. And, you know, he finds uh, uh, Mankiewicz finds him very depressed about having to compromise his morals and about being diagnosed with Parkinson's. And, you know, then Mankiewicz tries to help him and appears to, uh, but then it's revealed, of course, that Mankiewicz, you know, took away some of the bullets from uh, Shelley's gun, but that he still had, had more and was able to kill yeah. himself. And the film cuts from that to, I mean, it cuts back to the, to 19, to the 1940, uh, you know, main timeline, if you will, for a moment, but then it cuts back again to a funeral and I think it's interesting to kind of show the audience the bit of this funeral and then to reveal that, oh, it's not Shelley Metcalf's funeral. It's Irvin Thalberg's funeral. And, you know, we see before we see that it's Irvin Thalberg, we see, you know, that there's all these people and it's very uh, sorrowful and, and, and spiritual. And then it's revealed that it has nothing to do with the person who we just saw kill himself. Um, and I think that's you know, that moment to me was a big statement on how Mankiewicz felt about everything that was going on because Thalberg, you know, Thalberg, Irvin Thalberg was, you know, was an important person in the history of film. Um, and he was, he was, you know, I think he was made studio head at, um, he was made a head of the studio creative at MGM at the age of like 26. Yeah. And, and, um, and died when he was 37. Right, exactly, and he, you know, burnt out fast. But the the reality is, and you know, now we have the Ur- the Irvin Thalberg uh, reward that's given out at the uh, given out at the Academy Awards every now and again. But 
the reality is, and I hate to say this, but the reality is that Irvin Dahmer didn't really do a whole lot. And in fact, the movie kind of portrays him as being a stooge, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the one main encounter that he has with Mankiewicz is where he's telling Mankiewicz, like, you're going to donate to, you know, to, to the Merriam campaign. He feels like he feels like Mayor's hatchet guy. Right, exactly. And that, you know, whether that's true or not, I think what it's what it's illustrating by showing Shelley Metcalf committing suicide and then cutting to Irvin Thalberg's funeral is that Mankiewicz sees that there's no there's no meaning to any of it, that Shelley Metcalf felt something and he, and he wanted to stand up for it and he ended up killing himself. And at the end of the day, the person who really gets the big funeral and the big memorial is Irvin Thalberg, who didn't who is not worthy of it. And I think that, you know, is a moment that really helps to inform Mankiewicz's decision, you know, to keep pressing forward with what he's what he's trying to do. It hardens his resolve to, to push the screenplay out. How do you think this movie feels different if it's just a regular colored movie? I don't think it's as easy to draw the comparisons then to sit the visual comparisons to Citizen Kane. I think they're there. You know, they could be there. But I think by and large, making it. Uh, you know, producing it in the style of a movie from the 1940s, um, 1930s and 40s helps to reinforce those visual similarities to Citizen Kane. Well, not only that, but they they if you've read a little bit of it, they went to like great lengths to not only not only just do it in black and white, but they did it in to do a lot of the make it sound like a movie at the time. Which, which is something that, like, Roma didn't do, which is another movie we talked about almost exactly two years ago, I think, to this date. Uh, Roma was just – it was done – it was also done in black and white, but that was it. Here they actually try and make it look like a movie that would have been filmed in the 40s with a lot of the stuff they do with not only the sound, but they have the different kind of, like, the little projection circle pops up throughout the movie. Like, it it feels like that even though it's just something that was – you know, it was, shot, it was shot digitally too. Uh, how did you feel about them going to, like – those lengths as opposed to not only just leaving it and making it a black and white movie. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that, you know, you have to recognize that, uh, you know, the decision to do something like Roma in black and white has more to do with the emotional thrust of that movie. And, you know, what, what the movie is trying to convey thematically, whereas this movie, the, the assemblage, the way it was done is not only to evoke a specific time period, or just to, you know, to emphasize the themes, perhaps with the, the colorlessness of Mankiewicz's life, you know, if we wanted to get deep on that or whatever. But the, but I think it's to place the viewer in a in that world in such a way where it's inescapable. You have to uh, contend with things as they're presented, and you know, perhaps it's a little disorienting you know for for viewers i would not be you know I, I i don't think anybody would disagree with that but i think that's the point is to is to disorient and to put you as a viewer in this place where you're you're trapped inside of these elements um you know you're trapped inside of the the black and white you're trapped inside of the mono uh, the mono soundtrack you're trapped inside of it. and and I don't think it detracts in any way from the final product um, I think it's a it's a very well balanced um, yeah I think I think it's done pretty seamlessly actually I you know and I guess there's it could have it's something that felt like in the maybe in the wrong hands could have been distracting or too showy and I think I, I feel like they modulated it probably probably just right. And I, 
thought it was pretty effective. And, you know, once you see a movie done like this in black and white and done well, I, it's hard to even envision it being in color. I guess that that could happen. Who knows? I don't it, the movie had so many other problems. I, I don't know if you saw Trumbo, the Brian Cranston vehicle from a few years ago, which yes. it was not very good. I mean, I think there's probably like a version of that that's really well done, but I'm, I'm thinking back. It's like, I, I, I had b- bigger problems than the way it looked, but I was like, that's, looking back on it, it's like, oh, maybe that would have made more sense if it was kind of a black and white movie. I don't know. Uh, but here it just, it, it, the movie was in much better hands and it was, it, it, it was just done very effectively, and I thought it it, it it did evoke the time period really well, and I I, I appreciated it. And I it, it's nice if David Fincher is going to go to such great lengths to do something like that, and uh, have the means to, Netflix give him the means to do it that he that he pulled it off well, and, and and made it look really look up the time in a way that was very impressive, and not just feel like something that was kind of made in 2020 to look like it was 1940. I I guess I well, I guess last thing before I, uh, I, I we wrap up I, you know we talked about earlier I first question I asked you was were you happy with how it actually modulated itself or how it calibrated itself when it came to being a story about you know everything it was as opposed to being something about the script writing battle did you like how they did actually work Orson Welles into the movie ultimately uh yeah I mean it certainly makes him look like kind of a dick <laughs> um I, I you know for my money that's not exactly false. <laughs> um, I still have great respect for Orson Welles, but I think this movie showed that he didn't quite know what he was doing. Um, you know, and, and when you pair that with his sort of bombastic, you know, masculine personality, it's not a, quite a surprise that, you know, the chips kind of fell where they did. Um, I think, uh, Tom Burke does a great job you know, playing him like, a, you know, it's got the voice down very well. Um, uh, and the, you know, the stride and the physical presence. Um, What's interesting. He's like 40 years old and or- Orson Welles famously like 25, 26 when Citizen Kane right, and all this stuff was happening. Down. So I-, I wonder if it would feel different if they'd cast someone that was like a little more age appropriate in that role, if, the, if those if those showdowns would have felt kind of different, because the fact is, it was a younger looking guy doing it, but I felt like he did evoke Orson Welles's persona pretty effectively. And yeah, I don't I don't think it necessarily shit on him too much, but it made it clear that at that time, while everyone acknowledged he was like really smart, he probably still had a bit to learn about Hollywood. And just the way that last quote unquote showdown goes, it goes pretty fast where like, um, make makes it pretty clear. Like, look, I know you're the one that has control over this movie, but the fact is you're a bit of an outsider. And I think people are going to kind of come down on my side if this ended up becoming a fight. Even Wells has to concede that pretty quickly, even if he is kind of annoyed at the whole proposition of having to share the credit. Uh, but I, I, at the same time, I think they don't, it, it, they don't make him look like a total buffoon, but they do make him look like a little bit, you know, maybe a, a little bit arrogant, which fine if that's the way they want to go. It, it didn't, it didn't, I, I wasn't off put by it, put off by it. And I, I thought the scene was like really well acted. And if that's the way they want to work him in, I thought they, they did, they, they did a pretty good job of that. Like his presence still does kind of loom at other points in the movie. He drops in via phone call and it's interesting to see what their relationship is during the whole course of this. And I, I, I thought they did weave him in pretty effectively. And I, I, I wanted to at least acknowledge that before we wrapped up, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. uh, I had another thought cause one guy that keeps popping in throughout the movie is John Houseman, 
who is a producer on the film and I guess did a little bit of, in his own right, did a little bit of writing on it. And I was like, I wanted to learn a little bit more about that guy. What a weird career that guy must have had, huh? Ends up winning, yeah. winning an Oscar for being the guy in the paper chase, which I, I, I you know, I, a movie that I didn't, I hadn't seen until after I went to law school. But I mean, I was a, it's a performance that really stuck with me as someone that maybe had a professor or two in law school that kind of uh, uh, had that same kind of, uh, you know, had that same kind of vibe. And I was like, wow, like, it's interesting how at that time, I mean, yeah, today actors are producers all the time today. And I guess maybe they were at the time, but this guy was, seemed like he was almost more of a producer writer first and then moved into acting, but it was like such a big part of like the behind, behind the scenes thing here. And then ended up being an Oscar winning actor. Just uh, must have, I was just kind of fascinated when I saw that. And I was like, oh, wait, that's that same guy that I've like actually watched in a movie before in an Oscar winning performance. Wild. Um, yeah, I, mean, I don't know if you had any. Uh, th- I don't know if you had any thoughts on him or just anyone else that popped up in this movie. I just want to give you a chance to do that because there's obviously just like a ton of people popping up throughout this movie that yeah, you might even be a little more familiar with than I am. Because as someone who, as I said earlier, has only started getting more well versed in movies at this time. Yeah, um, I did like. I, I think I mentioned David Oselznik before. Toby Leonard Moore from uh, uh, Daredevil and Billions fame mm. um, appearing as, as David Oselznik, which I, I liked that he, uh, you know, they're in his introduction scene with the writer's room at, uh, at Paramount and, uh, you know, kind of the, the writers, including Herman Mankiewicz, sort of giving him the runaround on, you know, on their next script idea um, and his sort of recurring presence of being this guy who just sort of is just tasked with, you know, with herding cats in a way, uh, but there's some, you know, there's a sort of a darkness to him. But yeah, I mean, John Houseman, Sam, uh, Sam Trofton's presence as John Houseman's great. And Houseman, yeah, it's a, really a fascinating kind of character. You know, he comes from this, from this theater background, and that's where he knew, you know, he knew Wells from. Um, and then, uh, you know, f- sort of becomes the money guy behind some of these movies. And then, you know, he it's sort of and it's interesting, too, because he was really the last guy out the door with all of the with the studios, you know, that he you know, when the studio era was coming to an end uh, in the in the late 50s and early 60s uh, and, and studios were starting to lose their individual power more to directors and individual producers and whatnot. I mean, he really just bounced around, spent a lot of time at Paramount and RKO and MGM and then back in theater and then back to MGM um, kind of being something of a you know something of a stooge for the for the for the studios until they basically used him up and he was like you know fifty or sixty years old and had to go find something else to do um, <laughs> and sort of got back into acting I think you know from his theater background kind of pursued that back again but there, you know there was a heyday with him in the theater he, I don't know that he uh, he produced uh, Cradle Will Rock with uh, with Orson Welles uh, you know directing that that uh, performance on stage. And that led to, I believe, there's an, there's another there's another movie adaptation of um, of John Houseman. He appears in the in the 1999, I think, film Cradle Will Rock, which is uh, not the play or the musical, but rather a, a story about the production of the musical. Hmm. I think Car- Carrie always plays John Houseman in hmm. that uh, in that film. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's it's. It's a that's it's a strange film. It was directed <laughs> by Tim Robbins, but it came to mind when I saw, you know, how much of a character a husband ended up being in this film as well. So. Yeah, interesting. Any any other final thoughts before we sign off on Mank? I know we tried to cover a lot of ground, but if there's anything else you want to say, final thoughts. To me, 
there's a lot of great moments in the film that I think inform, you know, the, that main timeline and makes it, it helps to develop this sense of why Mankiewicz is the way that he is in 1940. And at one point, I think Hausman complains to him, like the stories, you know, talking about Citizen Kane, because the story is just a circle, you know, and <laughs> Mankiewicz says something like, yep, like a big cinnamon bun. Like <laughs> I would say that it worked to this film's benefit, just like it worked to Citizen Kane's benefit. That the story is not, uh, you know, told in, the, in a straight line showing you all these things and then showing you in 1940, everything happening. Um, and I would, I would go so far as to say that this is a great example of why that can work. You know, this film itself is a perfect example of that. And I, I hope that, you know, people watch the movie and recognize that that is, you know, that, that not every story needs to be told in a straight line. And then some, and, and indeed in some cases not being told in a straight line is maybe the best way to go. Uh, and also that you can make a movie that looks like this and feels like this for like $20 million because this movie was made for pretty cheap compared to yeah, he, what a lot of movies are made for nowadays. Yeah, it's impressive that it it looks like this and they pulled it off and, uh, and by all counts it was a fine production on within that budget. I guess I want to agree with what you said in that like I don't know sometimes I can get kind of frustrated with certain movies that just aren't linear storytelling and uh, I, for some reason it does it just works for me both this and Citizen Kane do and they're both effective in do you ha- how they have those timelines and we didn't even really talk about that much about uh, Charles Dance's Hearst but on the second viewing I mean it was it was kind of cool to just see how that relationship kind of converged and uh, or diverged in, a, in another as I guess a better word to use and I think that I think the storytelling actually really helps in that regard, and it's. I mean, it, it might be in a way the, mo- the one of the more important relationships in the movie, just as far as where the overall arc of where Mank goes to kind of track that. And I think the movie does a really good job of just showing how he ends up becoming further and further from this world after initially being invited in. And I think the uh, the, the timeline, the way they jump the, through the timelines, really actually helps with that. And I and I, I and I and I don't know. I would highly recommend the movie if if you even if you're not super well versed in the 30s Hollywood like I am, but you maybe have a little bit of an interest in behind the scenes type of things and have at least seen Citizen Kane once before and are kind of curious. I, I do think everyone will get something out of it. Uh, Elijah, before we sign off, anything else you've uh, watched recently you want to talk about or any Turner stuff you want to plug, anything like that? Oh man, I think I've watched, I haven't watched anything recently. I got a bunch Besides of, Mank. <laughs> yeah, I got a bunch of holiday movies. I got to start uh, hitting there you for go. December, but um I know that uh, I think it's been a it's been a, a topical news item, so I'm not sure that anybody needs to necessarily be reminded. But of course, uh, big news for us at HBO Max uh, is that moving forward into 2020, well, starting starting December 25th and moving into 2021, um, a basically all of our production slate will be available on HBO Max concurrently with theater releases, um, and that starts on the 25th with Wonder Woman 1984, um, and that will include going into next year Dune. Uh, the Matrix Four uh, and a number of other movies. So, yeah, well, uh, that that's been talked about a lot. So it's going to definitely make film going pretty interesting next year. I'm I'm glad that I'll be able to watch it. I'm you know I've been telling people like it, obviously there was like a very very uh, divisive reaction to that news, but I I don't think it means like. I personally don't think it means the do, the death of movie theaters to the extent a lot of people do. I haven't been as alarmist about that. I'm glad that we'll have a few more new things to watch because of it. The, the one thing I'll recommend to watch that I've watched recently because I've 
don't have a whole lot that I haven't already done a podcast on to recommend is that I'm still working my way through Steve McQueen's small axe movies on Amazon. I've only watched the first two. I think I mentioned Mangrove, which is the first one on here already. I watched Lover's Rock, which a lot of people have been talking about, which I mean, it's only like an hour and six minutes. I think it's still, I don't really, I'm not really so much into this debate about whether or not they're movies or TV shows, even though it's kind of a TV show episode length and it aired on BBC. But I mean, so whatever, but like movie show, whatever, Lover's Rock was really, really good. Uh, the way I described it was uh, in kind of the same way Mangrove was. They're both kind of about safe spaces for the, the black community in London in, during the 60s and 70s and whatnot. Or This one might even take place in the early 80s. I can't remember. But the fact is this one is Lover's Rock in a way. is like It's like a safe space within a movie that is a safe space within Steve McQueen's filmography. And that like there's actually a lot of joy in this movie. And he's not a director that like who, who, who I like, but you know most of his movies aren't really the stuff you laugh at. And or laugh or, or just have a fun time at. And a lot of this movie is fun, even if there's danger on the edge. And I highly recommend it. It's not a huge time commitment, and I think people will enjoy watching it. Anyway, he can he can shoot a party, and I'll I'll leave you with that. So Elijah, anything you want to plug before we sign off personally, or just uh, watching HBO Max, Letterbox, anything or no? Yeah, fine. So I, I, you know, I never plug my letterbox here, and I haven't recently because I've frankly not been uh, <laughs> slack. Yes, yeah, slacking. I've been slacking a lot, but um, you can, of course, uh, yeah, anybody can find me at uh, at Mr. Smith goes the number two, FL like Florida. Um, uh, and I'm on Letterbox. There, uh, it's Elijah Howard. There you uh, go. As usual, my old reviews. <laughs> there you go. As usual, I'm Josh Renovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O Y on Twitter and Letterbox. Podcast email is the rewindmoviepod at gmail.com. Twitter is at rewindmoviepod. Send us any other recommendations for stuff you want us to talk about there or any feedback. We appreciate it. Thanks again, Elijah, for joining us. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.